Eventually, swayed, it's been suggested, by the intervention of Richard Dimbleby, she relented. But to rerun that television coverage is to see just how completely the latent cheekiness of the medium was subdued by the enfolding stateliness of the coronation rituals. The cameras were put in their place and made to stand up straight where they were told and to pay attention when they were bidden. Anything as intimate as a close-up of the Queen herself, needless to say, was strictly prohibited, so that many of the most memorable shots of the ceremony are the remote views from the galleries high above the nave, peering down at the grandeur. And whatever the credits might have read, the real producers of the event were the Duke of Edinburgh, in his capacity as chairman of the Coronation Executive Committee, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, who was intent on maximising the mystical and sacrificial aspects of the rite, the Grand Chamberlain, the Marquis of Chumley, and most important of all, the Earl Marshal, the Duke of Norfolk, who was required to rule on matters as critical as whether rabbit fur was an acceptable substitute for ermine on the trim of aristocratic robes. It was. Over the black-and-white pictures, which themselves had the quality of official state photographs, poured with honeyed smoothness the deferentially modulated tones of the commentator's royal, the ripely hushed baritone of Richard Dimbleby for the Abbey Solemnities and the excitable lilting tenor of Winford Vaughan Thomas for the street procession. For that matter, the 27-year-old at the centre of all this seemed herself to have been crystallised as if in some ceremonial alembic into the role of monarch the open, often broadly smiling face of the young woman settling into the impassive mask of royalty. Millions of the loyal gathered in front rooms peering at the nine-inch screens that had been magnified with strap-on image enhancers, watched the heavily crowned, massively mantled figure, the train flowing endlessly behind her as she swayed down the nave of Westminster Abbey to the roar of the choir and the oceanic swell of the organ, the ancient Saxon Frankish shout, May the Queen Live Forever, echoing off the columns. Out in the streets and in the country, novelty was certainly not uppermost in the national mindset. Analogies between the two Elizabethan reigns were endlessly drummed home. The Earl Marshal was, after all, a Howard Duke of Norfolk, just as there had been a Howard Norfolk Earl Marshal for the coronation of the first Elizabeth. The souvenir book for Essex children emphasised the parallels between the reign of the first Elizabeth, a time when the English people faced a crisis, namely the great struggle with Spain. Now, in 1953, Queen Elizabeth II has come to the throne at an equally critical time. Two great wars have been fought when the nation has stood and suffered. But, it also promised, if we are loyal and steadfast, history will tell that the reign of our Queen Elizabeth will be worthy to rank with that other good Queen Bess. With all this fixation on the unbroken continuity of British history, it seemed only natural, or at the very least fated, that it should be Winston Churchill who should be in office as Prime Minister, presiding over the accession and enthronement of the new monarch. For in Churchill's person, the classical distinction between history as deed and history as report had become moot. Looking back over his entire career, had there ever been a time when Churchill had not both written about and acted on British history? 
Two weeks before the coronation, at a lunch for Commonwealth parliamentarians, Churchill told an American schoolboy, who for better or worse would go on to be a presidential speechwriter, study history, history, history. In history lie all the secrets of statecraft. Certainly in his own mind, the writing and doing were so entangled that it was virtually impossible to say which was cause and which effect. Even at the hour of supreme crisis in 1940, it might be argued, the difference that Churchill made to the destiny of the nation was as much a matter of words as deeds. His instinctive and perfectly justified belief that to bet on the future it was indispensable to reconnect the country with its passion for its past. Although he was in his late seventies at the time of the coronation, Churchill seemed virtually imperishable, clearly enjoying reminding the Queen at a great banquet held beneath the medieval hammerbeam roof of Westminster Hall that he had faithfully served her great-great-grandmother, Victoria, her great-grandfather, Edward VII, her grandfather, George V, her father, George VI, and now her. And the tutelary partnership between this young queen and the indomitable patriarch seemed to both press and public a perfect emblem of the happy marriage between old and new that was supposed to typify the coming epoch of the new Elizabethans. But three weeks after the coronation, on the 23rd of June, having, one assumes, entertained the Italian Prime Minister at a dinner with a speech about the Roman conquest of Britain, Churchill collapsed in a chair, the victim of a massive stroke. Its effects, carefully disguised from public view, he continued in office and in fact made an astonishing recovery. But, as he put it, the zest was diminished. Like the particular kind of Britain he cherished, he was mortal after all. And when he died twelve years later, in the freezing winter of 1965, the obsequies took place in a culture hot for novelty. Churchill, after all, could hardly be expected to have survived a time loop so complete that the whiskers and military epaulettes and frogging he had last seen in the Imperial Army of Queen Victoria had returned as the whimsical costume of rock bands. The 12th Earl of Hume had been replaced in Downing Street by a Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, who hymned the white heat of the scientific revolution. And the burial place of the first Saxon kings, Winchester Cathedral, for reasons still mysterious to me, had become a pop song sung by Frank Sinatra. But England stopped swinging, like a pendulum do, long enough to grieve. Indeed, on the 30th of January 1965, the day of the funeral, Big Ben's pendulum was stopped altogether for the duration of the obsequies. And in the unmeasured time it took to carry Churchill's coffin, cut from ancient Blenheim oaks, and carried on a grey gun carriage to St Paul's, where in a break from protocol the Queen waited before the altar to pay her respects, then out again past the enormous crowds braving the bitter chill on the streets, down to Tower Pier and aboard the launch Haven Gore, past the docks where the cranes of the Port of London were made to dip in salute, and on to the train at Waterloo, carrying the body westward, past a man standing on his flat roof, dressed in his RAF uniform and saluting, towards Bladen Churchyard, a mile or so from Blenheim where he was born. In that time, the cutting-edge glamour of the New Britain was utterly engulfed by the immense epic of the national past.
Out from its lair ambled the old beast history, prowling the streets and monuments, and daring any King's Road smart aleck to make jokes at its expense, which included me and my mates. For between the coronation and Churchill's funeral, we had become, we thought, serious readers of history, meaning inter alia Fernand Brodel, A.J.P. Taylor, E.P. Thompson, Mark Block, J.H. Plum, Asa Briggs, Dennis Mac Smith, and Christopher Hill, who came to our school and spoke with a bravely charismatic stammer of Milton and Muggletonians, but which very definitely did not mean Churchill or his loyal echo and eulogist Arthur Bryant. Bryant's rustic rhapsody on late 18th century Merry England about to face the crisis of the French Revolutionary Wars in his Years of Endurance, 1793-1802, published not coincidentally in 1942, was precisely the kind of thing that drew from us hoots of knowing derision. Bryant wrote, Within the candlelit windows of the wayside cottage and the farmhouse on the hill, old John Bull would sit dozing with his pot beside the kitchen fire, the dog and cat asleep at his feet, the good wife at her wheel, the pretty maid, his daughter, coming in with her pail, the tinderbox on the shelf, the onions and flitches hanging from the ceiling. In the tavern down in the village, old England still lived on, where over their pipes and bowls gathered round the bare rude table, the local worthies with russet, weather-beaten faces cracked their jokes and trolled their song. But Bryant's drowsy sentimentality, we also thought in more...